Hi everyone, I'm Blake Bartlett and I'm a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in software companies and help them grow faster. This season on the Build podcast, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with operators to hear firsthand how they've put their product at the center of user acquisition, conversion, and expansion. Now, on with the show. Today's episode is all about onboarding. Product-led growth companies spend a lot of time thinking about top of funnel and conversion rates. But what happens next? How do you make sure that a new user understands your product? How do you deliver maximum value in the minimum time possible? Thankfully, we are joined today by the user onboarding guru himself, Jonathan Kim. Jonathan is the co-founder and CEO of AppQs, a software product built to fix onboarding and other common UX issues facing product teams. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's just really great. So we're going to jump into all things product-led growth and in particular onboarding and customer experience, user experience. But before we do that, you're the founder and CEO of AppQs. So what is AppQs? We describe AppQs as a experience layer that sits on top of your product. You know, we found in talking with other SaaS products out there, especially those that are product-led, they want to be able to move faster, iterate on things like their onboarding experience, drive adoption of features. But those things are really hard. You have to get them on the backlog, work with engineering, work with design, and that process took a long time. And so we developed AppQs to make those things really simple, code-free, so that anybody on your team, product managers, growth teams, product marketers, can change things like those user experiences without having to write any code. What's the benefit of, and I guess, why do you see folks wanting to build out an experience later on top of their product versus embed these things natively into the product? Is it primarily that sort of time delay that you mentioned of needing to get into the backlog to actually get the feature built? Or are there other reasons for sort of building this out as a layer on top? You know, as you can imagine, when we were getting started five years ago or so, the idea that you would give something as important as your news or experience to a third party product was complete blasphemy. And we really sought out to prove that that's not the case. The companies that use us today are those known for amazing user experiences. And it's really for two reasons. The first one is that speed, right? So AppQs helps you get to market on some of these experiments, improving your user experience in a way that takes you minutes rather than having it take six months. So it's at time to value. The second is that for these really sophisticated companies, you know, they're not just satisfied with a one-size-fits-all experience. They're personalizing their landing pages. They're personalizing their website. Second somebody gets into their product, it treats everybody exactly the same. And we know that the best products out there are ones that really start working in this personalization. But it's way too complex for you to do if you wanted to store all of those variables or try to build that into your product. There's just too many moving pieces there. And so we abstract all of that complexity so that you can give this really personalized experience to users based on who they are and what else they've done with your website or your product. Are there any common UX mistakes that you see in products? I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen it all at this point, or at least seen a lot. Are there any common UX mistakes or consistent areas of low-hanging fruit that you see in most products that you could address with AppQs or you could just address in general from you know focusing more proactively on onboarding and user experience? I continue to be surprised by this fact, but oftentimes AppQs is competing against nothing. I think the biggest shortcoming that I've seen in products time and again is that they actually have no intentional onboarding experience. 
right? Every product has an onboarding experience, but most people aren't making that intentional. They just drop you into a dashboard that's got all zeros and don't tell you anything. And so I'd say the biggest low hanging fruit is just doing anything to create an onboarding experience. The second one, even for very product led companies, are they don't think about things that happen after that initial onboarding. What does the invited user experience look like? 10 out of 10 companies that we talk to never even think about that. What does it look like when somebody is added to that account? Nothing, right? They don't get any onboarding because they skipped over some of the steps that a new user did. Driving people to things like webinars, connecting with their CSM, adopting a feature, you know, much later into their usage of the product or finding out about an existing feature or a feature that was just launched. All of those things are things that never happen or they happen over email or a blog post. And so bringing that all into the product, I mean, there's just a ton of low hanging fruit. And what kind of impact can somebody expect to see if they fix their onboarding through your product or if they, you know, build it in natively or something like that? This company, Mixpanel, did this report from 2017 and they analyzed what retention looked like for the top 10% of SaaS companies out there. And actually they did it by a bunch of industries, SaaS, e-commerce, et cetera, versus the median. The top 10% of SaaS companies had like a 20% higher retention rate than those who were in the median. And the only drop-off was actually in that first week, so week one. And so to me, it's like, if you can nail onboarding and do that really well, you're expecting a 20% higher retention rate over the next two months than if you probably are doing nothing at all today. Got it. So this goes back to what you had said before, which is that you know it's surprising, but most people have not done any proactive design in their onboarding experience. There always is an onboarding experience, but it's much more rare for somebody to actually design it in an elegant way. So just doing anything helps create uplift in terms of retention, let alone if you do something and then you start iterating on it and really kind of optimizing that experience over time based on the data that you're seeing. 100%. We know that onboarding is super effective on near-term metrics like activation and conversion, but the fact that it can have this impact on retention, right, a metric that is so much further along, to me is just a natural place for people to want to invest or should want to invest. And if somebody's going to design their onboarding flow for the very first time, what is the first thing that you start with that has the most potential impact or just a starting point? I don't know that there's necessarily a one-size-fits-all answer for every type of product because I think there are some products out there that have optimized things pretty well. If you're not doing anything today, I would say just welcoming your users to the product is one that we recommend a lot. It's just some sort of humanization. You know, they just came from a marketing website that says, hey, sign up to get this benefit. They go through some steps, a sign up process, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, maybe 20 clicks later, they're in your product. Just reminding them why you're here. You know, maybe they sign up for a specific feature landing page. You can carry that narrative all the way through. And when they get into the product, say, hey, you're here to, you know, do this one job. Let's get started. And even if you change nothing else and still drop them on that dashboard, just that reality affirmation of why they are there helps them build momentum towards getting that value. And I want to jump into how you guys approach growth internally at AppQs and your sort of approach to product-led growth. But before we jump into some of the specifics of the funnel and your customer journey and what you guys do there, what does product-led growth mean to you? We actually share a pretty close definition. Companies are looking to their product as the main lever of growth. And product is a generous term nowadays. You know, HubSpot can look and say marketing grader for them is a product. We didn't have the verbiage back when I was there. You know, We just called it marketing grader. But I think now we understand it as a freemium type of product or like a really low grade product that helps them generate interest and leads into business. But it had an engineering team, it had a marketing team, it had its own mini team around it when I was at HubSpot already. And we take that same approach using things like our free trial, things like calculators to help people understand you know, the value of what they're getting. We made this thing called a launch planner, which sort of helps people plan new feature launches. All of those things are extensions of our product or even core parts of it. And I want to get into some of those specifics like really good UX and some of the launch planner things that you guys have. Before we do that, who are your users and how do they typically find or hear about AppCubes? Our users have changed a lot over time. If you had asked me when we had first gotten started, I would have said you know, B2B SaaS product marketers. 
And what we found is that the companies that actually love our product the most are specifically these bottoms up businesses. So you've got to have a freemium product, you know, free trial or be a B2C company. And it's traditionally buying into the product team. So product managers, but more and more, we do see these product marketers as well as customer success. Those are our two other biggest users. It's really anybody who's engaged in driving adoption, activation, usage of these products. In much more sophisticated companies nowadays, these are growth people. And these are people who are thinking across the organization. I think that's still a developing title within companies, but that's kind of how things fall for us. And then getting into how people find you and how they hear about AppQs initially. So this might be a good time to talk about some of these things that you had mentioned before, which is really kind of an extension of your product. You have, you know, user onboarding academy, you have really good UX, you have the product launch planner, user onboarding cost calculator. So what are these things and how does it help people discover or learn more about your product? We started probably because of our HubSpot background or HubSpot genes, marketing the product, you know, even before we had customers, maybe even before we had a real product back then. When we look at our mission, it's to help teams create products that their users love. A part of that is the product, but so much of that also is an education. And so we started the User Onboarding Academy as this series that helped teach people how to do onboarding really, really well. We realized that it wasn't a really understood space. And now that we're at scale, we've got a lot of end users, we can actually start baking in more data and best practices in there much more confidently. Same with really good UX, right? So this was just this little micro site that started by everybody at AppQs had a folder on their phone or on their desktop that was just screenshots. And we actually have a channel in our Slack channel where we're just sharing screenshots online of like, hey, check out this you know onboarding experience or check out this feature announcement that somebody did. And we just thought, wow, if we find value in these and seeing them, our customers probably will too. And so all of these additional things that we've built out are our way of just kind of empowering our customers to be able to think about the stuff in a better way. And whether they're customers or just kind of people who are fans of it, all of this stuff kind of helps them create products that their users love, whether or not they're using AppQs, which is in line with our mission. And so if somebody goes through you know one of these tools that you have built, one of these resources that you've built and then they like what they read, they want to take action. What is the call to action that you guys are putting there and and what's the next step in the AppQ's journey? Yeah, I would say that's an area where we could probably improve a lot. We haven't really thought that deeply yet about commercializing all of it. We do a a whole bunch of other things as well, like User Test Fest, for instance, is a pretty famous one. We've done nine of those today in a handful of different cities and the idea is really just to help people think about this problem because oftentimes, again, the biggest thing that we're competing against is non-consumption, people not doing any Thing, and it's not really a competition. And so our thing is like, let's just get people educated on this space. There's plenty of other time to start commercializing a lot of it. Some trickle of it does come back to us, but for now we're really focused on just driving the problem. And then I know if somebody goes to your site, you see it pretty prominently, you know, test it out. So I can click on that pretty clear call to action. I can create a free account and start seeing the benefits of AppQs. How full featured is the free product and how have you guys approached that? What is the role of freemium and overall journey? Yeah, it's pretty full featured. So when you sign up and test it out, you get a free account and it has every single feature unlocked for AppQs. And you can actually install, publish something and buy without ever talking to a single person. We experimented with a handful of different models for our freemium free trial. We started out with a 14 day free trial and then we eventually landed on a usage based free trial. So now instead of a certain period of time before you're asked to pay. It's actually a certain usage. So once you have over 100 flows seen by your end users, that's when the trial expires. That's when we feel like you've gotten enough chance to test it out. And that's when we ask you to purchase. Got it. And I I like that as well, because we've also been able to ship something into production and start seeing some of the true value, which is the feedback from and the benefit from, you know, the end user themselves. So, you know, the paywall doesn't or the conversion opportunity doesn't happen until you've delivered meaningful value. Not just what will this look like in a demo environment? What will this look like in a sandbox, but what does this look like in production and what's the potential impact to your product? 
I can tell you why we changed it too. Back in 2016 or so, when we had the time-based free trial, we found out that it wasn't enough time for people to actually test it out. And what they would do is they would reach the end of their 14-day trial and say, oh, it's only 99 bucks, right? So I'm just going to pay for it to continue trialing it. Something else would come up in the organization and they never got around to it. And then they would churn. And our numbers started looking really bad. And we're like, why is there such this huge one month cliff after people do it? And when we talked to them, it was because they were still evaluating the product. They hadn't actually had a chance to install it into their dev environment and test it out for real. And so we took that cap off and said, okay, we're not going to incentivize you to buy or to talk to a salesperson or anything like that until we feel like you've really tried it for real in production. How does AppQs handle onboarding? If I sign up for the account, how do you address the cold start issue that exists in any product? And how do you guys think about time to value within AppQs? That's a really good question. If you logged into the AppQs account for AppQs, your mind might explode because it's pretty meta. We use our own product to onboard our own customers and do a whole bunch of things beyond that too. So if you sign up for AppQs, you will get a welcome modal, right? That uh, says, welcome to AppQs. Do you want to walk through? It'll send you through a tooltip tour that teaches you about our editing experience. It'll end with like a video from one of our product managers talking about like the context that you're about to enter. And then you can start building your first experience. We bootstrap that with templates. And so when you get started, there are these templates that we built in that have the welcome experience, feature announcement, those types of things. And one of the cool things that we put in there is when you use one of those templates, it actually tries to pull in data from your site. So when you click the welcome experience template, we actually pull in your logo, some metadata about what your company does, and then we customize like some of that text there. And so, you know, you click, hey, I'd like a welcome model. It looks exactly like what we recommend that you do. And you can just hit you know, publish. The other thing I should add too is that this Chrome extension editor that we have lets you actually preview it as if you were an end user without having to install a single thing. So you have not yet at this point talked to a salesperson, inserted a credit card, or talked to your dev team about this. This is still you as an individual user within five minutes making something that could and does look like it will fit inside of your product. I know you've talked about the ability for somebody to go from discovery to create a free account to create your first production flow and then create a paid account. All of that can be done on a totally self-serve basis. But how do you think about the role of people in the overall customer journey? Is there any point at which a person gets involved to sort of lend that assist or is a salesperson getting involved to try to understand the use case or the pain point you know, better or is it really just truly self serve and then people come you know much later in the equation i think this is a place where we've had a lot of debate internally like what is the role of sales in a company that has a free trial or free product more recently we've come to understand what the rate of close is for customers that do or do not talk to a salesperson and we've actually experimented a handful of times and what we found is that customers that talk to a salesperson just consistently close at a higher rate versus those that are left on their own if you can hone in on the economics around that, it actually makes it very effective. And so we try to rotate the best leads that we see based on activity in the trial, based on sort of firmographic information that we pick up just to give ourselves the best chance. Some of those, in fact, a large majority of those either never get rotated to a salesperson or we wait until they're far enough along in that trial experience before we think about doing that at all. Yeah, I like that approach because a lot of times I do see that there can be an aversion to sales in a product-led growth business because it can almost be viewed as a crutch or something that has a negative connotation to the product itself. But I think the positive view of it and the way that I like to view it is that if they're the right sort of salespeople and you've built the right culture, they're there to help prospects, right? They're there to help people who are early in their journey. So if you flip that script and you start to view it as how can they help prospects? How can they sort of get involved and help solve problems? And when you reframe it that way, which is really it's about solving problems and adding more value to these people who are very early in the journey, it can be a sort of liberating view of sales and allow you to embrace it more wholeheartedly. 
100%. I think that where we've sort of drawn the line or seen the most benefit is when sales is putting on their helping hat and it's helping the customer understand the product, just like features and functionality. To me, that's probably a bad use of a salesperson. That's what your product should be doing is being more intuitive or self-serve and being more on demand in terms of learning. The place where I've seen sales add the most value is once somebody is committed to using your product and understands it and, and sees the value, helping that person navigate their organization and get buy-in right, or pitch the value to a larger group. That's where salespeople are uniquely situated to be able to help. right? And so they can empower that person with sales collateral or hop on a call with their team to explain the value very concretely and provide case studies and things like that. That's stuff that is really hard to do with a product. And sometimes you just want that personal relationship to drive it over the line. So that's kind of how we've started to think about it. Now, thinking about product-led growth, do you guys have a dedicated growth team at AppQs? <laughs> I mean, we're still a pretty small startup, so having an entire team is probably a little premature, but we do have one person who is a growth marketer, as well as another person who is really focused on demand gen just across the board. And those two people work pretty broadly, so they're optimized things like our free trial experience, sign-up page, those types of things. But I would say like overall, growth has to be sort of a subtitle or a minor for every person, especially the product team at a product-led growth company. You know, we talk about what percentage of revenue you know we expect to be coming from completely self-service. We talk about metrics and things like that for products specifically. And if everybody's not aligned to grow the company, I don't know if we'd be doing things the right way. Exactly. There oftentimes can be a growth team, a growth engineer, a growth marketer who's thinking a lot about specifically the experimentation framework and the testing and all of those kinds of things. But really growth should be and product-led growth should be kind of a cross-disciplinary function that everybody's constantly thinking about. And it really is much more of a DNA of a company than it is a single department or title within the company. So consistent with how I see it playing out. It does lead me to a question for you, which is how do you guys think about in this cross-disciplinary sort of cross functional way, testing and experimentation, you know, how do you decide what to test? How do you know something's been successful? Walk me through some of that framework. I think there's a couple different parameters here that are interesting for us. We've seen among our customers as well. If you're a B2B SaaS company, it's really hard to get the same sort of statistical significance on a test than if you were a B2C type business. And so we're really limited in the amount of testing that we can do post signup. So I think we kind of think of website or even something like really good UX, which gets a ton of traffic. That is an area where we can do much more experimentation, A-B testing, and feel really good about the changes that are happening there to predict whether or not we have a valid test. Once you start getting further and further into even a specific slice of the product, it becomes really hard to do testing there. And so on the one spectrum, you've got you know data-driven, quant-driven A-B testing. On the other side of the spectrum, you've got user testing, right, which is a different type of experimentation. As you get much closer into the product for us, we do a lot of user testing and a lot of customer interviews on mockups and stuff like that. We'll do a little bit more on the sign up and trial experience. But you know, when you're a steady state customer, if we wanted to segment and say, hey, as a customer who's using this particular feature, I'm gonna prefer it this way or that way, we just don't have the data to be able to say, you know, quantitatively this A B test is gonna perform better than this other one. And so that's where we just kind of do in-person stuff. And then I know you had mentioned that certainly you dog food your own product. AppQs runs on AppQs. You described that there's a lot of flows in there and, you know, a lot of folks on the team are involved. So how do you guys manage, you know, AppQs internally? Who's getting involved in thinking about the flows and how do you prioritize that? Product-led growth is kind of a cultural shift for companies to move away from something that may be more sales-driven. And I think in order to make that mental shift, everybody in the team has to be thinking about how can we start doing what we're doing in a manual way through the lens of the product. So we'll use it for things like the trial experience, obviously, new user onboarding, and then some ongoing feature adoption to get people into sticky use cases. We'll use it actually very successfully to drive people to things like webinars. And it's been incredibly effective. 
especially when you can target just customers who are maybe in their first 60 days and haven't yet done X. And these things are driven by individuals in the team, right? So our growth team will own that new trial experience. Product marketing will own new feature updates or the product manager will. And then CSMs are actually the ones who are creating these webinar calls to action and targeting specific users. And there's even more, right? Our design team will use it to recruit user testers. They'll use it to send surveys to ask people how easy was this particular workflow in the product. We use it to run NPS. And so there's a whole bunch of things and they're owned by different people within the company. That's really important because in order for a company to entirely be product-led, everyone has to sort of see their work through the lens of the product. Do you have any advice for people who are testing and going aggressive you know, towards product-led growth and growth marketing and everything we've been talking about, but also might be wary of over-testing and sort of making the waters a little too murky by testing everything at once? How do you think about that prioritization and scoping and not over-testing and over-tinkering? There are some really great articles out there, particularly around that testing quality. Once you introduce too many variables or too drastic of a test, it becomes really hard for you to feel confident that it's actually having the effect that you want. And so I would say the biggest piece of advice is really just understand what types of changes are happening in your product and how much volume you have. So you either need time or volume to get statistic on a product. And if the time is too long and there's too much changing, it's going to be really hard for you to feel confident that you're making the right changes. And then last question as it pertains to product and your product-led growth operation, how do you prioritize building the product itself versus building the product-led growth engine? Are there trade-offs there? Are they one and the same? How do you think about that? In an ideal, we wanted to think of them as exactly the same, but that's just fundamentally not true, at least not all of the time. I think there are some things that we do that are very specific after a certain segment of customer. And then there are some things that look much more like automating a human process. And I would say those things are very product-led. And then there's another category of stuff that's like more platform building. We try to allocate you know, a good amount of platform building, depending on like what stage we're in or how ambitious we think we need to be about our long-term vision. There's always some element of that in there. And then some amount of automation, especially on that free trial experience where we spend the most time from a human perspective. And then the feature work, right? Going after a specific segment of customers like enterprise or mid-market. And so the two that probably get the most trade-off are between the new features and sort of automating human processes. We always want some amount of platform in there. Yeah, it's a delicate balance. And I hear from a lot of product-led growth leaders as well. You're constantly getting lots of feature requests and feedback from you know your existing customers, as well as perhaps segments that you might look to address in the future that have different requirements. And you're always thinking about these things. How do I make my core product better? But also my product is the core of my growth engine as well. So I need to be constantly thinking about that. And so there can be this challenge of figuring out resource allocation between those two. There's no simple answer that I've found, but I like the way that you think about breaking it up into buckets and prioritizing appropriately between those buckets. And I think that can kind of create some sort of structure around how to run the team. So it makes a lot of sense. The one area that's always accretive to both sides is ease of use, right? The easier that you can make a product, it should improve the product-led growth model and help customers more self-serve. If there are places where you can make the product easier to use and add additional features, like for us with templates, we're continuing to iterate on that. Customers get value because now we're giving them best practices and it's kind of a feature and it saves them time. But it also means that there are fewer support tickets because there's less complexity, you know, and customers can achieve what they want without having to read a doc or anything like that. And so anywhere that somebody can find ease of use improvements, that does both, I would say. 
All right. So my final question for you, I know you see a lot of UX (laughs) because it's basically what you do for a living. So what do you think really good UX looks like in 2019? And are there any big emerging trends that you see popping up as the next big thing in UX? We're really bullish in general of more companies moving towards, you know, whether you want to call it product led or just self-serve in general. At Saster, actually, last February, Brian Halligan is like, you know, if you're a B2C company and you have not made your product self-serve, the train has already left the station. If you're a B2B company and you're not self-serve yet, the train may have not left the station, but it's scary enough to go. And so everybody that we talk to from a customer base, if they do not yet have a freemium or free trial business model, they're thinking about it, right? And I think we're going to see a lot more companies get much more competitive from a self-serve product model in the next couple of years. Great. Well, Jonathan, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you won't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. And you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do this by going to openviewpartners.com newsletter. See you next time.